Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, a possible life has been detected on an exoplanet. OSIRIS-REx spacecraft on track to deliver a sample of asteroid Bennu to waiting scientists in the United States. A new measurement of the Hubble constant deepens the mystery of the age of the universe. And NASA has a roadmap on how to investigate unidentified anomalous phenomena despite the despicable internet trolls. Is there anybody out there? out there On September the 11th, in Baltimore, the first year of James Webb Space Telescope Science Conference began. One of the speakers that first day was Niku Madhusudhan from the Institute of Astronomy at Cambridge University. We had him on last week's The Space Show explaining the significance of his findings about an extra solar planet. Here now is my edit of his talk to the conference. Hello everyone. So by the end of this talk, I'm going to you the first spectrum, uh, broadband spectrum and the first detection of carbon-bearing molecules uh, that humanity has ever, ever seen in the atmosphere of a habitable zone exoplanet. It's mind-blowing. So, so that's my outline uh, of my talk. Uh, I'll just start with a brief motivation, talk about observations, how do we do the atmospheric retrievals and what it means. Uh, big picture, uh, why are we interested in this planet, K218b, the planet properties are here. Uh, the bottom line is that it's a small planet, a sub-Neptune orbiting in the habitable zone of an M-dwarf. Okay. So that should be interesting in its own right, right? So it, it uh, orbits in a 33-day orbit, small transit depth relative to hot Jupiter is what we are used to. But this planet is about eight times Earth mass, two and a half times roughly uh, Earth radius. Uh, the interesting, most interesting part of it is that its uh, equilibrium temperature is similar uh, to Earth. Basically, it receives almost the same level of insulation. Um, so obviously, we want to understand uh, what the atmosphere of this planet is like, what the interior of this planet is like, and can it host life, whether it's habitable, right? So people uh, have uh, done this. Um, so about exactly about four years ago, uh, there were reports of um, 
a water vapor uh, inference in this planet with this is over 60 hours of HST time and we got this uh, spectrum in the field. Well, it could be a water world with a thin hydrogen rich atmosphere, it could be a mini Neptune like a smaller version of Neptune still with a reasonable hydrogen atmosphere. It could be entirely rocky planet but with a large hydrogen atmosphere. So these are all admissible solutions. So again we don't know what the interior uh, is uh, exactly. What we do know is that a small set of those solutions, so in this study you know, we explored that entire parameter space and found that actually there is a small region of that parameter space which does allow for liquid water on the surface of the planet if you have a thin enough hydrogen layer and you have a high enough albedo. So, so that was uh, a area of uh, hope for us, so we started uh, thinking why don't we propose for JWST observations to settle what the atmospheric composition is and that could in turn uh, give us some constraints on its interior composition as well, okay. So, so far in this work that I'm going to present, we observed only two transits, one with the near spec G395H between 2.7 to 5.2 micron that was observed in January this year and then another uh, up to 2.8 micron that was observed very recently in June. These observations were all standard time series transit uh, observations. The data reduction procedures are, were all pretty standard, no surprises uh, anywhere. So I'm not going to bore you with the details. I'm just going you, uh, to show you what the spectrum looked like on this uh, on the detector, and then the light curve is uh, spectacular, right? So that's with just two transits, 14 hours uh, with JWST. Look at that, from one to five micron, you can count. I promise you, there are five peaks of one molecule here. Okay, and that's HST that we had. So when I talk about a phenomenal shift that this is going to cause, this is what I'm talking about. It's huge, the impact is huge. And this is the habitable zone planet we are talking about. So before you get too complacent with this figure, let me take you further. So what that spectrum means, what does that spectrum actually mean? And so let me uh, get to the punchline for the results. So these are actually the chemical abundances that are coming out of that spectrum. So you can see this very sharply peaked methane detection. Believe it or not, this is the first time methane has ever been, has ever been detected in a temperate exoplanet period. This solves what is known as the long-standing missing methane problem. We have been trying to solve for the last decade or more. This is the first detection of carbon dioxide in a small planet period ever outside the solar system. And hold on to your chairs. Uh, we don't know if this is real yet, but DMS is a biomarker. So on Earth, dimethyl sulfide is produced just by life. You cannot produce it any other way. So we are not claiming this as a robust detection. Uh, that detection actually goes away if we massage da the data in different ways. We move this, uh, we put, introduce enough offsets, it can go away. But you still see the posteriors are not totally uh, non-detections like this. There are still peaks. So, so there is something there we don't know. So we are calling it tentative. But folks, if in a few years, if we realize that this is actually DMS, history is being made as, as we speak right now. I kid you not, it's actually true, right? So, uh, so with that, uh, those are our nominal, these are our very robust detections. This is a nominal uh, inference and there, and then we actually don't detect water vapor. Uh, we don't detect ammonia. And then there are some other species which we also don't detect, but their upper limits are interesting. Now let me tell you what this abundance, uh, what this composition actually means. Now I told you how there's a degeneracy in the interior composition. 
Turns out if you do a chemical calculation and you have a deep hydrogen-rich atmosphere, it sets into equilibrium very quickly if you go into the deep atmosphere. So molecules like methane and ammonia are expected in cold atmospheres as we see in the solar system. But if you remove them by photochemistry or something, in the deep atmosphere you still attain equilibrium and it will be replenished very quickly. Okay, so you cannot get rid of CH4 or ammonia if you have a deep H2-rich atmosphere like the solar system giant planets. So long story short, the only way we can explain the abundances we are seeing is if you have a surface in the planet that cuts the recycling of those species. Moreover, that surface has to be a liquid or some water surface. It can't be just a solid surface, the trends that we are seeing. And there is a numerous um, papers written on this in the literature over the last couple of years, but the summary is that you need uh, a water surface. Now, that brings us to the, to the uh, whole motivation uh, in, in the, that, that we discussed in the abstract, which is that this is exactly what we predicted three years ago. So this is a triumph of theory and observation going hand in hand. This is what we predicted and used K2H&B as a prototype for, a, for what we coined as a Haitian world, a planet with ocean-covered surface and hydrogen-rich atmospheres, and we predicted that K2H&B should be a good target for that. I won't have time to go into this, but Haitian worlds are basically planets that can have a large amount of water and thin hydrogen atmospheres, and those expand and accelerate our search for life by just expanding the habitable zone enormously. You should read that paper if you're interested in. So uh, these are my conclusions. So uh, if I came here and I told you we just detected methane in this planet, that would already be a revolution in the field because we have been looking at it for, for that for like a decade. And here I am telling you that that's only one of three bullet points in my talk, okay? So we have sort of addressed the missing methane problem. And then uh, we did the robust detections of methane and CO2 together uh, most likely is the first evidence for the presence of an ocean on an exoplanet. It's huge again, but again, I still call it um, you know, a possible, I'm not saying it definite, we need more observations to just robustly confirm that. And finally, there is a potential inference of a possible biomarker. Let's hope that that goes away uh, with more data because that is a scary prospect. To summarize, what has definitely been found on Kepler K2-18b is methane and carbon dioxide. To be confirmed by follow-up observations is the detection of dimethyl sulfide, which on Earth is made only by plankton and man-made industrial processes. Unless someone can explain another production process, this means that life exists on Kepler K2-18b. Heading towards the planet Earth is a spacecraft carrying samples of the asteroid Bennu. This feature from the Goddard Space Flight Center explains it all. OSIRIS-REx is NASA's first asteroid sample return mission. It launched in September 2016 on a journey to explore a near-Earth asteroid called Bennu. After arriving in 2018, OSIRIS-REx spent nearly two years orbiting Bennu, mapping and studying its rugged terrain before carrying out its primary science objective. On October 20, 2020, the spacecraft ventured to a small crater in the asteroid's northern hemisphere. It dodged jagged rocks and towering boulders and plunged its arm into the loose surface, excavating six tons of debris while collecting about 250 grams of material. 
OSIRIS-REx stowed its bounty and closed its sample return capsule. It bid farewell to Bennu in May 2021, embarking on a 1.2 billion mile cruise back to Earth. Now, two years and four months after leaving Bennu, OSIRIS-REx is closing in on the place where its journey began. On September 24th, the spacecraft will approach to nearly 63,000 miles from Earth. It will power up and release its sample return capsule at 4.42 a.m. Mountain Time. The capsule must be jettisoned within a narrow time frame and at just the right angle to hit its target, an area of roughly 250 square miles in Utah's West Desert. Once the capsule is away, OSIRIS-REx will fire its thrusters to avoid colliding with Earth. At 8.42 a.m., the capsule will streak into the atmosphere at a blistering 27,000 miles per hour. It will race across the western U.S. and begin to glow with heat, allowing infrared trackers on the ground to chart its progress. As it pushes deeper into the atmosphere, the capsule will rapidly decelerate, subjecting the Bennu samples to a punishing 32 Gs. About two minutes after entry, it will slow to Mach 1.4 and deploy its drogue parachute, stabilizing its descent. The capsule will enter special-use airspace at 8.46 a.m., almost 10 miles above the Department of Defense Utah Test and Training Range. Radar stations will lock on and track it to within 30 feet of its landing site. At 8.50 a.m., the capsule will extract and deploy its main parachute one mile above the ground. It will make its final descent at a leisurely 11 miles per hour, like a marathon runner savoring a victory lap, before touching down in the desert soil at 8.55. After ground teams retrieve the capsule, the Bennu samples will be taken to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. The sample canister will be opened in the Astro Materials Acquisition and Curation Facility, and the samples will be curated, distributed, and studied for decades to come. Having delivered its cargo, the OSIRIS-REx spacecraft will depart Earth, but its journey will not quite be finished. In a daring encore, the renamed OSIRIS Apex will enter an elliptical orbit of the Sun, repeatedly passing within the orbit of Venus and pushing the limits of its thermal design. Beginning in 2029, it will chase down and investigate Apophis, a 1,200-foot stony asteroid destined to make an exceptionally close flyby of Earth. After 13 years in deep space, at the start of a new decade alone on a new world, the journey will continue. And the NASA television broadcast of that return to Earth is on, begins on Sunday at 10 a.m. Uh, so, yeah, watch out for it. That's uh, coming back to Earth. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, the sounds of the Bayside. Where this is the space show. The American astronomer Edwin Hubble was the first to establish the rate of expansion of the universe. That rate is called the Hubble constant in his honour and serves to date the age of the universe. 
One of the major aims of the Hubble Space Telescope was to accurately measure the Hubble constant, which it was able to do, setting it as 73.0 plus or minus 1.0 kilometres per second per megaparsec. The problem is that measurements of the cosmic microwave background radiation made by the COBE and Planck satellites set the Hubble constant as 67.4 plus or minus 0.5 kilometers per second per megaparsec. Well, first some background on the COBE satellite. This report by Frank Tomlinson found in 1990, one year after launch. NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration presents The Space Story. The cosmic background explorer, known as COBE, is confirming for scientists that our universe is expanding in the way Edwin Hubble discovered in the 30s. Just the kind of expansion that was predicted by Einstein's theory. Dr. David Gilman of NASA headquarters was project manager for COBE. This is our first NASA mission that has been aimed specifically at investigating the conditions in the earliest universe. That way, COBE is a unique mission, but is driven very much by the scientific desire to find out what was going on right at the moment of creation. The COBE mission launched in November 99 both Delighted and puzzled astronomers, it was reported that in the first nine minutes, Kobe blew away mountains of speculation with facts that were soon reported to a major scientific gathering. The first results were presented to a meeting of the American Astronomical Society in early January 1990. And when the Kobe scientist presented his results of the spectrum of the cosmic microwave background, the audience rose to its feet in uh, spontaneous applause. The first time anybody can remember this happening at the American Astronomical Society because the results he showed fit the curve of an ideal radiator with minuscule uncertainty. In every observation there are certain small errors, certain small uncertainties that uh, you try to estimate so that your results are not uh, taken to be more accurate than they really are. Uh, But uh, COBE has very small uncertainty in its measurement of that spectrum and through all the points at each wavelength that he was able to plot uh, he drew a single spectrum of an ideal radiator and it, it went right through the middle of each of them. To those who know the significance of these spectra it was an astonishing confirmation of the initial theory of the Big Bang. To achieve its mission the instruments aboard the COBE satellite must be kept cold, colder than you and I have ever known. The years of planning achieved this by placing the COBE in a specific orbit, as explained by Dave Gilman. It's in a uh, highly tailored orbit. It's almost polar, but in fact it's just a little bit beyond polar, so that its direction of, of orbit is sort of the opposite of the way the Earth rotates. And uh, this has the uh, advantage that it leaves COBE's orbit approximately side-on towards the Sun. And the orbit walks around the Earth one degree a day, and that way it keeps the same face towards the Sun. And then the satellite points away from the Earth at all times. This allows us to keep the cold environment in the shade and also pointed away from the Earth. At the, in the 
way that we measure temperatures on COBE, the instruments are at about one and a half degrees above absolute zero. If the COBE satellite should stray from its orbit for any reason and start pointing toward the Earth or the Sun, it would have an adverse effect on the COBE mission's delicate instruments. If we were to point at the Earth, the Earth is at 300 degrees above absolute zero, which is blast our instruments and use up all our helium. And to point towards the sun, I mean, the sun is several thousand degrees above absolute zero, more like 6,000 degrees. And uh, our helium wouldn't last more than a few hours if we were to really point towards the sun. So we have to keep the satellite, the instruments, and their helium in the shade and pointed away from the Earth. The orbit lets us do that. The theory of a massive explosion was given the designation Big Bang when scientists in 1949, flush with new knowledge of nuclear physics, ran a reverse scenario to when the universe might have been a single point. Again, Dave Gilman. Kobe has provided a dramatic confirmation of this theory from the late 1940s. Dramatically confirmed the fundamentals of the Big Bang Theory. This has been the Space Story, brought to you by this station and NASA. For the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, this is Frank Tomlinson. A few days ago, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson paid tribute to Nobel Prize winner John Mather. And when you think of the universe, and especially what we have learned from the James Webb Space Telescope, how vast that it is. We knew before, and it was a NASA scientist, Dr. John Mather, who got the Nobel uh, that determined that the universe was 13.8 billion years old. And over the years, particularly accelerated in the last century, uh, we have an understanding that, of course, ours is not the only galaxy. And there are billions and billions of galaxies, and each of those galaxies, including our own, have billions and billions of stars. The discrepancy between the two measures of the age of the universe is one of the outstanding issues in cosmology. It is often referred to as the Hubble Tension. Last week, new measurements made with infrared light by the 18-month-old James Webb Space Telescope were announced. They confirm that there is no systematic error in the Hubble Space Telescope measurements. In an article written for the Space Telescope Science Institute, Nobel Prize winner Adam Rees said, the Hubble tension, or he said of the Hubble tension, the most exciting possibility is that the tension is a clue about something we are missing in our understanding of the cosmos. It may indicate the presence of matter, uh, or rather of ex exotic dark energy, exotic dark matter, a revision of our understanding of gravity, or the presence of a unique particle or field. Well, here is a 12-minute extract that I have taken from his conference talk. 
So I'm going to give a brief review of the Hubble tension, and then I'm going to discuss uh, new results from JWST uh, that are informing us about this. This is work with the SHOES team and collaborators, and uh, I'm going to discuss results in two papers, this HST paper from last year, this new JWST paper, which is accepted in the AppJ, uh, and if there's anybody media-related uh NASA just did a blog, uh, and for those who want to follow along, cheat sheet, the Hubble tension, 0.18 magnitudes. Okay, so uh, one of the great accomplishments of the last 25 years of cosmology has been the development of a standard model of cosmology, Lambda CDM, and this model summarizes everything we know about the universe, particularly its composition, but it's humbling to recognize that about 96% of this model is made of unknown stuff whose nature we don't really understand, uh, particularly dark matter and dark energy that both have very shallow roots, I would say, in fundamental physics. That is, this is a phenomenological model, and it's used to essentially fit what we see, um, but it leaves big questions, particularly about the nature of the dark parts. And so, therefore, it's crucial to rigorously test this model from end to end. And one of the only ways we can really test the model from end to end is by predicting the value of the Hubble constant from the model and measuring it precisely. So I'm just going to walk you through that very briefly. But we start out with the model as it looks here, vanilla lambda CDM, and we take the most vanilla form that it can have. So dark energy, a cosmological constant exactly, even though we're not sure about that. Dark matter, a cold particle with no interactions, perfectly stable. We don't know those things, but we assume them. And then we vary six free parameters in this model to predict the scale of fluctuations in the plasma of the early universe. We then compare that prediction to the angular fluctuations, the spectrum of those, and so you vary the six parameters until you get a good agreement between the power spectrum as seen from Planck and uh, the model, and then you use the model as it's now calibrated to predict the entire expansion history of the universe, the dark matter-dominated phase when it decelerates, the dark energy-dominated phase when it accelerates, all the way to the present time when it tells you the value of the Hubble constant that it should have, 67.4 plus or minus 0.5, uh, very high-precision prediction. And so a powerful end-to-end -end test of this whole story is to directly measure locally the value of the Hubble constant by measuring distances and redshifts. And so uh, we set out more than 20 years ago in a project anticipating reaching this point with the CMB where we wanted a percent-level direct measurement of the Hubble constant, leveraging the Hubble Space Telescope largely and using what were considered the gold standard tools of distance measurements. So that is three rungs or connections to make this measurement, and that is uh, geometry, uh, Cepheid variables, and type 1a supernovae. And I'll talk about those in a little bit. Um, I just want to mention this is not, of course, the first effort to measure the Hubble constant. Uh, there was a previous generation with the Hubble Space Telescope that successfully reached 10%. In order to reach percent level, uh, we had to redesign the way we made these measurements, and so I want to mention a few of those key things. It's crucial to cancel flux calibration errors along the telescope by measuring, for example, Cepheid variables with the same telescope and instruments on rung one and two, which we do. It's crucial to measure in the near-infrared to reduce the impacts of dust. The first generation was primarily in the optical. 
Um, it is also crucial to use the best quality supernova data, not things from the photographic era of the 1930s, but modern, well-calibrated data. We use the Pantheon Plus sample. It's also crucial to carefully propagate errors all the way from the beginning of the distance ladder to the end to keep track of covariance between data sources with uh, common errors and to undertake a wide range of analysis variants to see if the results are robust. Uh, and finally, I think it is crucial to publicly release the data so other people can analyze it. We've released 10 to the 7 data numbers and code so you can read that in. Uh, and it's at the GitHub site that I showed on my first slide, and it'll come up again later. All right, so I'm going to briefly walk you through the distance ladder if you haven't seen it in a while. Um, there's been great progress in the first rung. The first rung is where you use geometry to calibrate Cepheid variables. And this is done three different ways now. Uh, with parallaxes in the Milky Way, I'll talk about those. A detached eclipsing binary system in the Magellanic Clouds have become very precise in the last few years. And observations of water masers in the radio in Keplerian motion around the supermassive black hole in NGC 4258. And so you take any one of these, they're good to about 1 to 1.5% precision. Uh, the great aspect of them is that they're all independent from each other, and so they provide very powerful uh, checks. So let me first show you the progress that's been made in the period luminosity relationship as calibrated by Cepheids and Parallax in the Milky Way. Um, and so in order to play this game, you have to get to 40 micro arc second precision in parallax. Uh, we reached it using spatial scanning of the Hubble Space Telescope to measure astrometry and photometry. This was surpassed a few years later by Gaia DR3, which now provides the best parallaxes. And even better is to use the parallaxes of open clusters measured by Gaia, but you can average hundreds of stars per cluster to reach 10 micro arc second precision. In all three cases, it's, oops, sorry. In all three cases, it's crucial to still measure the photometry of the Cepheids with HST using the spatial scanning because they're very bright sources. Um, and so by the time Gaia reaches data release four or five, we anticipate this will get to about 0.4% in the calibration of the Hubble constant. Uh, alternatively, you can measure Cepheids in the large Magellanic cloud to tie to the detached eclipsing binaries. They're far flung, and so we have to use the dash mode with HST. But doing that, you can collect close to 100 Cepheids in the Large Magellanic Cloud. And this shows, uh, as you go from the optical to the near-infrared, how uh, Cepheids uh, become better distance indicators you see through the dust. You can also de-redden as well, so you can really reduce the impacts of dust. Uh, and then the third anchor is the galaxy NGC 4258. There's been six major campaigns on this with the Hubble Space Telescope to find Cepheids there, now some 669 Cepheids. Okay, on to rung two. Rung two is where you look for nearby galaxies within a redshift of 0.01 or 40 to 50 megaparsecs that recently hosted a type 1a supernova, and you go back and you find Cepheid variables in those galaxies. This takes a lot of work from Hubble, and there's only a supernova in that volume about once a year, and so it's taken 40 years to collect this sample of 42 supernovae and 37 hosts. And even with an optimistic lifetime for Hubble, I don't think we're going to double this sample again. And so this is basically what we get. Um, but uh, it's a very powerful sample for this. We measure the Cepheids in each of these host galaxies. These are the composite light curves of all the Cepheids uh, in each galaxy, which are used to measure their periods and, of course, identify that they are Cepheid variables. And then we measure in three colors the Cepheids to measure their period luminosity relation to measure their distances. 
Okay, so the third step is actually a very famous step. This is the Hubble diagram of type 1a supernovae. Uh, it's been used uh, very successfully in cosmology. So we're essentially measuring the Hubble flow with type 1a supernovae. We avoid the nearest ones because you would be affected by flows. Uh, we don't go out to too high a redshift because the Hubble constant changes, so you have to account for that. So we want to keep it relatively nearby, so redshift 0.02 to about 0.15. So you put this all together, you get one simultaneous distance ladder that takes you from nearby out to the uh, expansion in three steps. You do a simultaneous fit to this. It's just a series of linear equations. So we use some 3,200 Cepheids, 300 type 1a supernovae, this non-diagonal covariance matrix, which now for the first time keeps track of systematic uncertainties, how there are dependencies between different data points. Uh, and you do the simultaneous optimization, which you could just do by inverting a matrix, since this is all linear, or you could do an MCMC so that you can see the relationship between the different parameters. Um, I hope this isn't too disturbing to anybody, but um, we don't get the same value as Planck. Uh, we get 73 plus or minus 1. That includes systematic uncertainties. You may have heard this before. Um, and this is 5 sigma from Planck. Or if we include the latest cluster data from Gaia, it's more like 5.3 sigma. Uh, to really convince yourself, you have to run MCMC samples out to 100 million samples to check the tails. And indeed, we are 5 sigma uh, from Planck, but with a very good fit internally to the data, as you can see from the chi-square. And you separate from different ways, different CMB experiments that are predicting the value of the Hubble constant. They uh, cluster around 67 to 68, whereas the local measures of precision are all higher in the 70 to 75 region. There's really no precise local measurement that's coming in lower than Planck. This is what we call the Hubble tension, and it's been around with us for about 10 years. Um, so what is it? I wish I knew. Uh, it could be something missing in our understanding of the universe because we use lambda CDM to connect from the beginning to the end. Of course, we also worry whether it could be some kind of systematic error. And so Okay, so getting to conclusions, um, so this discrepancy, this Hubble tension, it's been around for 10 years. People have looked really hard at lots of different possibilities, different possible sources of error, have been studied quite intensely, uh, and no uh, source of error has been found that would explain this, and now JWST, I think, has really kind of put a nail in the coffin of was there a problem with Hubble's Cepheid measurements? Um, uh, as I said, another way to describe this is when you look at even other measurements, even the ones that are less precise but still relatively precise, um, they're clustering above. There's no precise one that's coming in lower than Planck. So this is a, a pretty robust statement at this point. Um, as I said, an exhaustive test of systematics, variations of the analysis. We don't see any sources of excess noise or internal inconsistencies within the distance ladder. JWST has shown that the tension is not due to problems in Hubble measurements. I think that's a very significant contribution to the story. Um, and so I think this is very interesting. I mean, what is actually going on is there's something missing in Lambda CDM when we uh, use it to tell the story of the expansion of the universe, really threading a needle all the way from the beginning of the universe to the end. Uh, I don't know. Is it new physics? Uh, I mean, this is a hard problem because we have very constraining cosmological data, and so it's a very hot topic for theorists to think of extensions to cosmology to explain this. And there have been at least about a thousand papers on the archive in the last few years that are attempting to do this with varying levels of success or failure. 
Um, and so uh, I think these results are going to keep people working late on this problem. I'll end there. Thanks. That's Adam Rice speaking last week in Baltimore. 88.3 Southern FM. Strong language warning. Strong language warning. The space show went to air in 1991. A few days afterwards, a letter arrived in the post. This woman wrote that our first program was, and I quote, as interesting as freeze-dried shit, end of quote. Now, in those pre-social media days, this woman at least had the gumption to sign her real name and address. These days, gutless trolls send anonymous messages via social media and email, dishing up vile abuse and even death threats. The problem has become so bad that in the United States, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration at first refused to name an official in charge of a new department being set up to scientifically investigate what are now called unidentified anomalous phenomena and what were previously called UFOs and flying saucers. Take a listen. In June of last year, NASA commissioned an independent study team to examine unidentified anomalous phenomena. We did so with a few goals in mind. First, to examine how NASA can use our expertise and instruments to study UAP from a scientific perspective. Second, shift the conversation about UAP from sensationalism to science and to make sure that whatever we find or whatever we recommend, to make sure that information is shared transparently around the world. There's a global fascination with UAP. On my travels, one of the first questions I often get is about these sightings. And much of that fascination is due to the unknown nature of it. Think about it. Most UAP sightings result in very limited data. That makes it even more difficult to draw scientific conclusions about the nature of UAP. And so this independent study team brought together some of the world's leading scientists, data and artificial intelligence experts, aerospace safety specialists, all with a specific charge from me, which is to tell how to apply the full focus of science and data to UAP. And this is the first time that NASA has taken concrete action to seriously look into UAP. The NASA independent study team did not find any evidence that UAP have an extraterrestrial origin. But we don't know what these UAP are. That's why I'm announcing that NASA has appointed a NASA director of UAP research. 
they are being tasked with developing and overseeing the implementation of NASA's vision for UAP research. We will use NASA's expertise to work with other agencies to analyze UAP. We will use AI and machine learning to search the skies for anomalies as we have been searching the heavens and will continue to search the heavens for habitability. And NASA will do this transparently. And we're going to share more with you, and I want to introduce you to Dr. Nikki Fox, who is the head of our Science Mission Directorate. Nikki. Good morning, and thank you so much, Administrator Nelson. It's always tough. UAP, as, as Bill just eloquently said, UAP are one of our planet's greatest mysteries, and it's really due to the limited number of high-quality data that surrounds such incidents and often renders them unidentifiable. While there are numerous eyewitness accounts and visuals associated with UAP, they're not consistent, they're not detailed, and they're not curated observations that can be used to make definitive scientific conclusions about the nature and the origin of UAP. The independent study team's report is now public, and it can be found at uh, NASA, uh, sorry, science.nasa.gov slash UAP. And as you heard, we have appointed a director of UAP research. In their role, uh, they will centralize communications, resources, and data analytical capabilities across the federal government to establish a robust database for the uh, evaluation of any future data. Beyond our director of UAP research, uh, NASA will also advance citizen reporting by working with the public and commercial pilots to collect a broader set of data to add to the, uh, the vast data repositories to not only contribute to a broader, more reliable data set for future UAP incidents, but to also contribute to the destigmatization of the important study of UAPs. And with that, it is my great pleasure to hand over to Dr. Dan Evans, who is the NASA official responsible for supporting this amazing study. Good morning. I'd like to begin by expressing my sincere thanks to NASA Administrator Bill Nelson for directing this study. We at NASA believe that understanding UAP is vital for several reasons. And with that, I'll pass over to Dr. David Spergel, who chaired our study. First and foremost, I'd like to extend our sincere gratitude to the NASA Administrator for entrusting us with this pivotal study. For its analysis in other areas, NASA always takes a scientific approach of systematic data collection that involves calibrating instruments, multiple measurements, and ensuring sensor metadata. Most UAP events lack this quality of data. It is essential to clarify, based on our current findings and methodology, that we find no evidence to suggest that UAP are extraterrestrial in origin. Our focus is on understanding the phenomenon, however, regardless of the source. So in conclusion, with a rigorous methodology, collaborative efforts, public engagement, NASA can be a key player in the whole of government approach to understanding UAP. Thank you. 
Thanks. Uh, this is Joey Roulette from Reuters. Um, question for Bill Nelson or any of the other panelists. Um, so you've appointed a director of UAP research. Have you named someone to that role? Uh, yes, we have. Uh, we've already appointed uh, the person. They've been working there for a, a while now, um, <clears throat> like during the study, to, to help be a, a point of contact. Um, Can you name the official who's in We will role? not give his name out, though. Um, and we actually talked then about um, the, we wanted to remove the stigma, and we also did not tolerate any of the abuse that um, some of our members of the panel were receiving, particularly on social media, um, for, for doing this really important scientific study. So absolutely, we want pilots and uh, both, um, as Bill said, you know, both, both private pilots, um, uh, commercial pilots, uh, military pilots to feel that if they see something, they, they need to report it. The phone, can you hear me? Our first, our first question is from Marsha Dunn with the Associated Press. Your line is open. Uh, yes, hi, Marsha Dunn, AP. Um, I'm already receiving emails on Area 51 in Roswell, so I would like to ask Mr. Spurkle, um, how much were you and your fellow panel members hassled or bombarded by this sort of thing during the course of your study? And uh, for NASA, are you not naming the director of UAP research for this very reason, so that they're not hassled and bombarded by the fringe element? Thanks. On the other hand, one of the things that happened during the study, and this may be part of a bigger discussion of cultural behavior on social media, where people behave badly, and I would say harassed some of our panel members, and that I think is you know is was very inappropriate behavior behavior one doesn't want to see. Um, sadly, I think it's part of a deeper problem when people somehow feel on the web on social media they can be nasty and hostile and we and sadly some of our panel members experience that. Not only were some of the the things that our panel members received during the course of this study, simple trolling. Some of them actually ro rose to, to actual threats. And as a result, you know, we at NASA take you know, the sanctity of the scientific process and the security and safety of our team extremely seriously. And yes, that's in part why we are not splashing the name of our new director out there. Um, because science needs to be free. Science needs to, to undergo a real and rigorous and rational process, and you need the freedom of thought to be able to do that. Um, some of the threats and the harassment have been uh, beyond the pale, quite frankly, towards some of our panelists. And yes, it's important that science be free as part of that process. Our last question, please, from the floor. Yep. Thank you all for doing this. Joe Khalil with News Nation. My first question is, uh, you've described harassment of some of the panelists, uh, while that is horrible and never a good thing, it does sort of come with the nature of, of public officials. You know, Mr. Nelson, as a senator, lawmakers get that kind of thing all the time. Is that the justification for keeping this new position, director of UAP research, private? Do you plan on doing that forever? Is, is that a temporary thing? Because it seems to cut against the dedication to being open and transparent if this person forever is, is not going to be revealed, their identity, who they are. Yeah, okay, so uh, at the time, yes, we, we are withholding that name. Let's not forget that we've only just received this report. 
Will that person's name be disclosed to answer your specific question? Uh, potentially, yes. But again, we need to ensure that the scientific process and method is free. On September the 14th, NASA administration changed its mind and named the new director of UAP research as Mark McInerney. Now, here's hoping that he doesn't get trolled by any of the nutters out there. Only they know why they do such despicable things. But hey, we've had poison pen letters since writing was invented. This has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. Hopefully we'll be back 